The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the life that you have called us to, each one receiving an individual calling and yet not a calling that is separate from the whole. Lord, we thank you that we are members of the body of Christ and yet you have touched each one of us individually, that you have a call in our life and that you have so much for us to do as a as a way of manifesting Your glory uh, in the world. So, Father, we just pray that as we look at the life of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, that You would, um, that you would speak to us, both inspiring uh, us by her faith and her service, but also uh, maybe, uh, maybe just pressing us a little bit into what we might uh, be called to uh, by You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we are looking at Mother Teresa now called St. Teresa of Calcutta, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, let me first say that next week we will, for Lent, uh, we'll, we're, next week will be the first Sunday in Lent, and we're going to go through a study in Galatians. Uh, a Bible study like that, a little more my forte than a sort of a historical biographical narrative like we've been doing in Epiphany. Stretch me. I hope it's been uh, helpful to you or, or um, uh, meaningful to you. It has been uh, to me, and I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, but we're going to look at Mother Teresa, and, and I, I went through several folks. I wanted to do. I wanted to look at a woman uh, because we looked at two guys and, and one woman. I wanted to be equal. Um, but the um, the other two other reasons. One is that we all remember Mother Teresa. I mean, she she um, when I was uh, growing up, and somebody would would say to me, you know, name, especially like in young life and sort of Christian circles, they would say, you know, who is the best person you know, that you can think of uh, in the world, you know, like the most moral or whatever. And of course, you know, it's Billy Graham and Mother Teresa. Like that, those are the two people that everybody all, always said. And then, of course, there was like, and even they need Jesus because they're sinners. Anyway, so, um, and they are, of course, sinners. And Mother Teresa knew that she was a sinner. But many of us will, all, all of us really, I think, will remember Mother Teresa. Um, also, uh, her, her missionary heart and, and the efforts that she did fit well with our sermon today. So I assume that one, either you have been or will be uh, hearing the sermon today, and I think it fits well. So we've had um, two men, Martin Luther King Jr. and Eric Little, and two women, uh, Teresa, both named Teresa, Teresa of Avila and Teresa of Calcutta. No Anglicans, incidentally. Hmm, wonder what that says about us. All right. So let me... Um, Frame it. Actually, I'm going to hold off on, on that. I'm going to, I'll frame it in a minute. Um, I'm just going to read a passage of Scripture. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Mother Teresa uh, was born Agnes Gongshe Biashu, or something like that. Uh, Agnes Gongshe Biashu. And she was born on August 10th in 1910 in Skopje, Albania, which was then a part of the Ottoman Empire. So uh, that area of the world, Eastern Europe, has seen a lot of different uh, iterations of itself uh, since 1910. Later, Skopje is later a city in Yugoslavia, and right now is the capital of the Republic of Macedonia. Um, but Agnes was born into a very poor family, a very, very poor family, uh, but a very religious family. Uh, one source uh, that I saw said her father was a grocer, uh, one source said that he was involved in some local community politics. Uh, 
those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, so um, Teresa, when she would look back on her childhood, she spoke very fondly of that. Uh, she described her mother particularly as a very holy woman, but remembers, has vivid memories of her parents praying together all, all the time. Now, she said her dad was away for work uh, at nights a lot of times, but whenever he was home, they would all pray together, and, and her mother would gather them uh, together uh, any time that she was, uh, any, she was there alone. She would gather the children. Uh, she, they were a happy family, uh, and her, though her father died when she was eight years old. And she said that actually brought their family closer together. Uh, they were, again, she was just a very... Um, they're, they're very pious, very uh, committed Catholic, Roman Catholic family. Um, I, I really couldn't find anything on the limited sources that I was looking at uh, about how many siblings she had. There definitely, uh, she was the youngest, and and definitely a sister. But at least one thing made it sort of imply that there were many many children in the family. Um, the, they often read stories. I mean, you remember this is early, early. So this is they would um, they didn't have they weren't sitting around watching the Olympics on TV. You guys watching the Olympics? I love the Olympics. So to their to their own detriment, they weren't sitting around watching the Olympics. But they didn't know any different. They were their entertainment was to sit around and read, uh, listen to mom read stories about missionaries, and uh, particularly uh, Agnes was captivated by stories of missionaries to uh, Bengal, which is on the very western end of the. Indian subcontinent, and just right up, sort of snuggled up to Bangladesh. If you can imagine, sort of India kind of comes down in a big triangle, and then Bangladesh, and, and then you get over into Southeast Asia. But um, Bengal is the is the westernmost territory of India, and um, and by age twelve, Agnes knew that she wanted to become a nun. She felt particularly. Uh, the leading uh, in that direction. She heard the call while she was praying at the feet of Our Lady of Letness. And again, for someone like me who is has sort of been allergic, just for different reasons, uh, to Catholic piety, but yet cannot deny at all the sincerity of the faith and the uh, uh, remarkable work that God did through a woman like her, uh, I have to say that God is just gracious and He meets, meets us where we are. And he speaks to us in the way that we need to be spoken to. Uh, I probably am not going to go and pray at the feet of Our Lady uh, on a statue. Uh, in fact, I'm fairly certain that I, that I will not. Um, however, um, I, she, God met her there. So, I, you know, it, it, to me, it's just as, as coming from a background of one to sort of argue about right or wrong or just make it black and white, it's not. You know, it's like God just is so gracious and he met her there and he's met me where I am. And so we just have an incredibly gracious God who longs for a personal uh, and intimate uh, relationship with each of us. Um, so at age 12, she really thought she heard God give her that inclination to become a nun. And, um, and she prayed about it for, for like the next six years and probably intermittently because she describes there's many times where she doubted her vocation. Um, and then she, there are many times that she kind of forgot about it and just she was a, a happy uh, young girl uh, there in Albania. But, and when she, when she posed this idea to her mother, uh, her mother opposed it. Uh, her mother was against her becoming a, a nun and committing herself to the religious life. Um, she's, basically, she didn't think she could be, stay committed. And she said, if, if you're going to do it, you're going to have to only be committed to 
to God and to Christ. And uh, her mother often said to her uh, over many things, she said, if you accept a task, do it willingly. If not, don't accept it. That was, that was Albania mama. That was her, that was her, um, that, that was her mantra. And so that she applied that to Agnes' uh, religious life, her inclination. If, you, if you're going to do it, go all the way. If you're not going to go all the way, don't do it. I want to uh, just read a, a portion. This is, I showed you this book uh, when we talked about Martin Luther King. It's called Finding God, a Treasury of Conversion Stories. It's a really, really uh, wonderful book. But she says, I, I, this is Teresa writing. When, the writings, at least the ones they recorded here, and I'm sure there's so many more, uh, um, just a very simple, she wasn't really educated. You know, I mean, she, but a very si- simple, she's incredibly smart. But simple vocabulary, uh, just very uh, lovely. She said, Once I asked my confessor for advice about my vocation, I asked, How can I know if God is calling me and for what he is calling me? He answered, You will know by your happiness. If you are happy with the idea that God calls you to serve him and your neighbor, this will be proof of your vocation. Profound joy of the heart is like a magnet. It indicates the path of life. One has to follow it, even though one enters into a way of difficulties. Interesting. So, how can I know if God's calling me? You will know by your happiness. Um, and I just want to just reflect on that a little bit. I mean, I, I think there's one sense in which I personally really resonate with that, and there's another sense in which I it makes me really nervous. Because I think when some people say, you know, you just gotta follow your heart. I just immediately go to Jeremiah, who says the heart is dis- deceitful above all things. All right, so um, lots and lots of people have gotten in trouble for following their heart, um, or hurt other people for following their heart. Uh, so I, I just immediately, just because of who I am, I immediately begin to throw up caution flags when I hear something like that. And yet, and yet for me, uh, I think I've shared a little bit about my. Uh, my journey to ordained ministry. And I felt very sincerely that I wanted to test this call because other people suggested that they saw it in me. I felt like, you know, that's something I really would like to do, study and, and preach and, and lead uh, in the church. And, um, and I, I think you know, I mean, I went through a process in the, in the Diocese of North Carolina, and, and I don't need to get into it. Bishop Curry was, was my bishop. I'm grateful for who he, uh, he is as the uh, presiding bishop. But, um, but I, was, I was turned down. The door was left open a couple of times, sort of cracked open, and I determined to get through that crack in the door three times uh, I was there. And finally, it, the, it was closed, and I went to seminary uh, unsponsored. The reason is because I was convinced, and I still am convinced, that the only thing that would make my heart happy uh, vocationally is to be a priest. Um, I, in fact, each time I got turned down, more and more uh, was I convinced that this was the calling. Now, I did go to, um, to seminary really as sincerely as I possibly could with an open heart that, that the bishop had made godly judgment and, um, and that I would... Uh, that I was not called to be a priest, but I definitely knew I wanted to go to seminary and wanted to get that education and see what the Lord had for me. Um, I wouldn't trade that time. That was so disappointing. 
but I wouldn't trade that time for anything in the world. It really helped form me for who I was. I, in fact, I really think Bishop Curry did make godly judgment because that's what the Lord needed for me to go through. Um, and I found my way through another, another diocese. But, um, but the reason I was spurred on is because I felt like I could not do anything else and, and be, look back over my life and feel fulfilled. Now, that's not for everybody. It's not even for most people. Not for many people. It's, um, it, was, it was for me. It was, that was the calling that God had on my life. It doesn't mean I'm super spiritual or anything. It just was particular uh, to me. Um, but I knew that I could probably do other things and be successful, but to really be fulfilling what I felt like God made me for, um, that I, I needed to pursue ordination. So, um, in fact, I was at a, a, a conference this past weekend on, uh, on the future of theological education. And I was talking to a student. He said, well, how did, how did you know? And I, I, really my answer was because I knew I couldn't do anything else. Um, and that has been affirmed for the last 11 years as I've served in uh, ordained ministry. Um, I mean, there's days where, you know, I need to, I need to prop my feet up. There's times where I'm real grateful for vacation. Um, there's days that are hard, but never do I wake up and think, I'm not, this isn't for me. Um, because it's what makes my heart glad. So, it, you're welcome to reflect on, on that, but that, that was what her confessor told her. I do think it is, it is the heart, I mean, I can, one thing I can say about me, and certainly not to ever put myself in the same boat with uh, Teresa, but um, one thing I can say about me then and about her there is that uh, these were hearts that were indeed seeking the Lord uh, earnestly. Uh, in the context of community, in the context of their own local church. So, um, so for the, if the heart has reached a point where we truly mean, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord, then I think we can listen uh, to our heart, uh, if we're listening to our heart in the context of community that is also asking uh, the same questions. Any, any reflections uh, on vocation, listening to your heart? I mean, certainly the world's going to tell you, hey, just follow your heart, but sometimes. Yeah, Rick. I think it's easier to look back and say, yeah, there may have been examples where that worked, but at the time when some of those trials were occurring, I wouldn't have said that's what was going on. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I, I just hope for each of us, and, and I think that, that you would live a life of fulfillment uh, because you are doing what God made you to do. And, uh, and if you're going to run a... Um, a company, then you need to run that company for the, the best you can for the glory of God. And if you're going to um, be a stay-at-home mom or, or work as a, as a pilot, I mean, you know, how does a Christian pilot really serve the Lord? Like, land the plane. Like, that is really an important thing. They don't need to come on and do Bible study over the intercom, like, land the plane, you know, so... Um, do it for the glory of God. Um, so, part yeah, Sully Sullenberger, right? Yeah, he, for the glory of God, no doubt, no doubt. All right. So, at age eighteen, Agnes did feel uh, convinced that she had been called um, to this life, or at least to go to the next level of discernment. And so, she left Skopje for Ireland, uh, and there she would join in with the Sisters of Loretto to learn English. 
Uh, now Loretto Road is named after the Sisters of Loretto, isn't that? Isn't that somebody told me that. I, I, is it? Isn't that right? I think. I mean, right down because it goes down to Catholic Corners. I think. I think it is. Um, so she went there to learn English in preparation for her work as a missionary uh, in India. That's what she felt called to. And um, and when she left, and the reason she was needed to learn English to go to India was because that was the language they used in the schools. And she was going to go teach school. And so that when she left at age 18, that was the last time she would ever see her mother. Isn't that amazing? She really, truly desired nothing more than to give her life fully and completely to the service of God. Now, as you can imagine, as she got older, that changed in sort of what it, what it looked like. But, for her, but that was her desire, and that, never, that desire never changed. She was only in Ireland for six weeks, and then in January 1929, she left Ireland to go to Darjeeling, India, which is uh, the lower Himalayas in the province of Bengal, tucked right in, up in the corner between Nepal and Tibet. I mean, it, you're not going there unless you're going there on purpose, right? You're, you're not going to just <laughs> swing off the exit to Darjeeling. I mean, it's, it's, um, it is on the way to nowhere. Um, and and she did, that's where she did her novitiate. And what her novitiate is, is a, uh, and my Catholic friends can tell me uh, a little bit, fill in the gaps for me, but it's a, it's a long period of time of, of prayer and discernment and study and preparation for religious orders. Is that right? Is that pretty? It's like seminary for you. It's like seminary. Okay. And um, so, um, and it was then that she took the name Sister Mary Teresa. And she wanted to be uh, named after Teresa of Lisseau. Uh, Teresa Lasso was a, a French uh, saint who was uh, the patron saint of missionaries. So she thought, who, who better? Now there was somebody in there uh, who, uh, in her convent that already had the French spelling, so she opted for the Spanish spelling uh, without, the, without the H. Uh, so she was uh, Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A, um, and Sister Mary Teresa. And for 20 years, she went down to Calcutta and she taught in a middle-class high school. That is something I never knew about Mother Teresa. Before she was Mother Teresa, she was a very happy uh, Sister Teresa uh, as a sister of Loretto, and uh, there in Calcutta teaching in a middle-class high school. Uh, so Calcutta is also on the very western end, in Bengal, and then the very western end, um, I guess for you to be this end, uh, the western end of uh, India, very, not far at all from the Indian Ocean coast. And she loved being a teacher. Uh, she said, I don't know if I taught them anything, but I sure love being a teacher. And, um, and if you've been a teacher, you know what she's talking about. Um, but increasingly, as she you know, lived her life there and she worked these middle class folks, she saw on the periphery of society uh, the, the poorest of the poor, the very, very poor there in Calcutta. And she became increasingly disturbed by the poverty that she saw around her. And so... Um, in 1946, she was on a train uh, to back to Darjeeling to, uh, to for a, a silent retreat, a uh, spiritual retreat. And she heard Jesus talking to her, and she had an epiphany. She heard what she called uh, calls the call within a call. Uh, so she had already been called to to religious orders, but she heard it. Uh, now God is calling her to take a, a different step. 
which is to say that once we're, even when we're on the right track, that that track may take twists and turns, right? You probably have experienced that uh, in your own life, and it certainly did for her. She ran from this call. Uh, she asked God to take it away from her, and I'm going to read sort of a long, uh, a long portion of, of letters that she wrote to her archbishop. Now, it's really, really fascinating. You can, again, just see that really, I, I think, I find very sweet style of communicating that she had. Um, I can, I, if you, you can watch her, you, there's many speeches and things that she's given that you can watch, I'm the wrong book, um, that you can watch on YouTube. And it's just, um, she has, still speaks, she speaks very profoundly, but very simply. Um, I encourage you to do that. So what Jesus is saying to her on the train to Darjeeling is, Wouldst thou not help? Wouldst thou, wouldst thou not help? And so she's explaining this experience to her archbishop. How can I? I've been very happy, and am very happy as a Loretto nun, to leave that what I love and expose myself to new labors and sufferings, which will be great. To be the laughing stock of so many, especially religious, meaning those in the religious orders would laugh at her for leaving this posh life that God called her to, to go live among the poor, and cling and choose deliberately to the hard things of an Indian life, to cling and choose loneliness and ignominy, uncertainty, and all because Jesus wants it, because something is calling me to leave all and gather the few, to live his life, to do his work in India. These thoughts were a cause of much suffering, but the voice kept on saying, Wilt thou refuse? One day at Holy Communion, I heard the same voice, very distinctly. So this would have been in Darjeeling later. The same voice, very distinctly. I want Indian nuns, victims of my love. Isn't that an interesting phrase that Jesus would say to her? Victims of my love, who would be Mary and Martha who would be so very united to me as to radiate my love on souls. I want free nuns covered with my poverty of the cross. I want obedient nuns covered with my obedience of the cross. I want full of love nuns covered with the charity of the cross. Wilt thou refuse to do this for me? On another day, you have become the spouse of my love. This is Jesus speaking to her. You have come to India for me. The thirst you had for souls brought you so far. Are you afraid to take one more step for your spouse? For me? For souls? Is your generosity grown cold? Am I a second to you? These are hard words, aren't they? You you did not die for souls. That is why you don't care what happens to them. Your heart was never drowned in sorrow as it was my mother's, meaning Mary. We both gave our all for souls, and you? You are afraid that you will lose your vocation. You will become secular. You will be wanting in perseverance. No. Your vocation is to love and suffer and save souls, and by taking this step, you will fulfill my heart's desire for you. That is your vocation. You'll dress in simple Indian clothes, or rather like my mother dressed, simple and poor. Your present habit is holy because it is my symbol. 
you're sorry will become holy because it will be my symbol. You know, she took on the, put away the habit and took on the white, sorry, with the blue uh, border. She says, I tried to persuade our Lord that I would try to become a very fervent, holy Loretto nun, a real, vi- a real victim here in this vocation. But the answer came very clear again. I want Indian missionary seri- sisters of charity who would be my fire of love against the very poor, the sick, the dying, the little street children, the poor I want you to bring to me, and the sisters that would offer their lives as victims of my love would bring, me these, bring these souls to me. You are, I know, the most uncapable person, weak and sinful, but just because you are that, I want to use you for my glory. Wilt thou refuse? Amazing. I think it's like Jesus. I mean, what I tell you all the time is that there is no shame coming from the voice of God unless you're Mother Teresa. Um, And it's, um, you know, it's not, but it seems like this intimate conversation, doesn't it? It's not shame in the sense of you're you're bad, but shame in the sense of don't be afraid. Let's, Let's really put on the table what you're afraid about. And, and uh, I just, and she's, she's saying, I'm trying to tell him, no, I don't want that. He says, I know you're weak and sinful. And that's, you know, so he's actually acknowledging her own doubts. And, she, and he says, that's why I want to use you. I mean, that, that could be any one of us, right? I mean, God may or may not use us in, in uh, uh, profound ways like he did Teresa. But uh, it, is, it was her acknowledgement of her unworthiness that made her worthy. And that's that part of that. We find so many things in our life, uh, in our Christian life, that just the economy of Christ is just completely upside down, right? Life comes after death. Joy comes through suffering. Uh, so many things are just upside down. Um, and yet, and so here it, he's saying, because you're sinful, that's, that's why I want to use you. She says, these words, or rather this voice, frightened me. The thought of eating, sleeping, Living like the Indians filled me with fear. I, I prayed long. I prayed so much. I asked our mother Mary to ask Jesus to remove all this from me. Will you tell your son to cut it out? <laughs> this is so good. The more I prayed, the clearer grew the voice in my heart. And so I prayed that he would do with me whatever he wanted. He asked again and again. Then once more the voice was very clear. You have been always saying, do with me whatever you wish. Now I want to act. Let me do it. My little spouse, my own little one, do not fear. I shall be with you always. You will suffer. And you suffer now. But if you are my own little spouse, the spouse of the crucified Jesus, you will have to bear these torments on your heart. Let me act. Refuse me not. Trust me lovingly. Trust me blindly. I just... I mean, that just it wells up emotion in me just, just reading that. I just think it's so beautiful. And to think of what began in this, this the slump. You, you know, that's the starfish story, right? You know, uh, the boy walking along the ocean and saw zillions of starfish, and he's throwing, throwing them back, and some guy says, you know, what difference do you think you're going to make? It doesn't matter. They're all, look how many millions are left. And he said, it will matter to this one. And he, you know, throw, threw it back. And you can walk into the streets of, of Calcutta and think, how, what in the world difference can I make here? 
this one nun who owns zilch, probably has no, um, no connections of any sort, really, at this point in her life, other than obedience. This was her call within the call, and it lasted, right? He pursued her. He wouldn't let it go uh, from her. Um, and, so, and so she says yes. And she left Loretto, the sisters of Loretto, and began the Sisters of Charity, to live among the poorest of the world's poor. Now, I've not ever been in a situation like this. I've been among the poor. I've done soup kitchens and things like this. But, but I, I, And I've actually been in a place in Jamaica that might have been something like this. But it's hard for me to even imagine that that was, uh, that that was quite like this. It was, a, a, um, it was essentially a hospice when she opened up a lot of hospices. Um, it was for folks that just there was nothing to do with them. And it was on a, a wooden a wooden floor, and they were in these kind of, you know, beds with the springs falling out, and, uh, and we just sang to them, essentially. Um, but she wanted to give them dignity, both in life and in death. So you know that there's a caste system there in India, and she would never work with anybody above caste two, one and two. That was, that was all she would work with. Um, so it was then that Sister Teresa became Mother Teresa, and she began her work with the poor, listen, in 1948. So this is already 20 years into her, into her being a nun and working there. In, but 1948, that was a long time ago. 69 years. 69 years. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, so, so that was 1948. 1949, there was a group of women, a small group of women, who came to help her. So first she went, she was on her own for a few months, and then God sent her a small band of women. In 1950, the Vatican gave her permission to start a new order, the Missionaries of Charity. In 1952, she opened her first hospice there in Calcutta in an abandoned Hindu temple. I got this, what I'm about to read to you, I got off Wikipedia, you can, which I, I think it, sound, it sounds right anyway. Uh, those brought uh, to the home, those who were brought to the home, received medical attention and the opportunity to die with dignity in accordance with their faith. Muslims were read the Quran, Hindu, Hindus received water from the Ganges River, and Catholics received extreme unction. A beautiful death, Teresa said, is for people who lived like animals to die like angels, loved and wanted. You can just really see the, the heart of compassion uh, by that, but also the, the reliance on Jesus Christ that you would have to have all the time. And yet, and I'll talk about it in a minute, um, we know, and nobody really knew until after she died, that she lived much of this time in a, in a spiritual desert, like just not hearing from God. But faithful, faithful uh, she remained. And we'll talk about why that is. But the, of course, the passage that... It may not be a surprise. The passage that came to mind when uh, reading about uh, what she gave herself to was from Matthew 25. Uh, we preached on it not too long ago, actually. Uh, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, this is Jesus talking, uh, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, you did it as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. Um, and, and one of the things we said in that sermon was that the, the ones who were declared righteous did it because they, it needed to be done, not because they, thought that, not because they knew that they were serving uh, the master. Um, and so she knew that she was serving the master, but she did it because it needed to be done. And in fact, because he wouldn't let her do anything else. So soon after the hospice followed, uh, very quickly, honestly, uh, orphanages, leprosy outreach clinics throughout Calcutta, and then throughout India, and then around uh, the world. Uh, Her work was put on the global stage uh, by a documentary uh, which was done in the early 1960s by Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, who you may remember and may know that name. He's a British journalist. And in fact, his work with Mother Teresa in that document, uh, documentary was, was profoundly influential in his own coming to faith. He was a, an atheist and, um, and became a great apologist uh, for the Christian faith. If you ever heard Ravi Zacharias, uh, Ravi Zacharias talks about Malcolm Muggeridge all the time. He, lo- he loves Malcolm Muggers. Um, throughout her ministry uh, and for her work around the world, uh, Teresa received many awards from the Vatican and from the nation of India. And in 1979, she was awarded uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, she, uh, she was very controversial in some ways. Um, it's, in, in, some thing, in some ways, it's hard to imagine that anyone uh, was... Uh, held her with controversy, and yet she was criticized because of the conditions uh, in, uh, in, her, in the hospice. It wasn't clean uh, as, or as up to standards that they thought uh, that it ought to be. Um, she, had, she was against abortion. And she was against divorce, and, and so uh, those things came, uh, people came out against her. What is uh, remarkable is that she, uh, as I said before, she lived... Um, she had very little formal education other than the, the novitiate and some, some medical training and, and whatever schooling she got in, in Albania. Um, no pedigree, uh, just faith in a great and magnificent God. She lived, uh, as we said, much of her life in spiritual desolation, uh, and, and she identified with Christ on the cross over and over again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And she found such solace in that event of the crucifixion. Jesus saying, I thirst. He was dry. She talked often about how Jesus thirsts for us. Um, and that's actually something I would not considered before. Uh, but, but rather the, the dryness of, God's, of Jesus' spirit on the cross and calling out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? She just clung. She just lived her life and served uh, at, from the foot of the cross and uh, claimed her great reward in 1997 
Um, and if you remember, I didn't, I didn't realize, I mean, she, she received this huge, amazing, internationally televised Indian official government uh, funeral in a Hindu nation. And it was, um, I, I remember hearing after the fact how incredibly unusual and controversial that would have been in India uh, for them to acknowledge this Catholic woman, but she had done so much that nobody really gave it much fuss at all. Um, and I can remember watching uh, either, either the funeral on television or maybe it was a, a clip uh, later, but it was um, very ornate. She was, um, it was in the very shortest possible window of, uh, that you have to wait before you can beatify and then, and then give someone sainthood. Um, she received that. Her feast day is on the anniversary of her death, which is September 5th. So just a remarkable woman. And, uh, and what fascinated me was this call within the call. And the, uh, she was on this track, and she actually loved this track, and she didn't want to leave this track. And yet it was Jesus who called her away from that track. And then, as he was working through her in this ministry of suffering, she actually became an Indian citizen, uh, too, which is uh, important to note. She identified so closely with, with the people that she was ministering to. Um, that she, um, as she was called to suffer alongside those who were suffering, like that's why, and she knew it, but that's why Jesus was silent. That's why God's voice was silent to her in those many, many, many years. A few times of, of levity in her life, but not, not a lot, uh, but a life of faithfulness and profound impact that captured the world's moral imagination. So, uh, thoughts, reflections, memories, questions? Yeah, Dorsey. Yeah, I thought it was interesting the way um, uh, God, Jesus put a guilt trip on her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you didn't, you didn't die for souls. That's why it doesn't matter you whether the soul is going to die or not. Yeah, you know, I think... And the sorrow that you didn't feel sorry that my mother's heart felt. Yeah, so the, uh, the, the, um, the caution that I get with that is I often put my, uh, my own baggage onto Jesus' voice. So there is, uh, that's the way I would say it if I were Jesus. Um, you know, who do you think you are? You didn't, you know, but, but it's very likely that Jesus is much more consistent with his own character and that she understood exactly uh, what he was saying. And he said it exactly the way she needed for it to be said. But yes, I agree. I found that, in one sense, sweet because she was so taken to it, but in another sense, a little scary. Yeah, Ellen. Isn't it kind of though how um, God answered Job when he kept saying, "Why is all this happening to me?" And God never really gave him an answer. He just said, "Who do you think you are?" And it yeah. kind of humbled Job to say, "Wait, never mind. I'll just do what you want." Maybe it's kind of her. You know, I appreciate you bringing that up because. Um, I had not thought about it. I've heard Job talked about as the story of the repentance of a righteous man. Um, and whether, where I naturally think Job is about uh, why bad things happen to good people, which, um, which is, in a sense, we can, we can certainly talk about that. But, but that was much more helpful to hear that description. Here's, here's a man who was righteous before God, so much so that, 
that God bragged about it and yet brought this to bring him into brought this suffering upon him uh, to bring him to a point of, of neediness. Yeah. Well, that's what I was reading for, trying to get this answer. I'm like, why did all this happen? And then it gets to the end and he never answered the question. He just he says, says I'm God. Like, it's going to work out. Tim Keller says that if, if we have a God who is uh, infinite in power, it's likely that He has a goodness beyond what we're, our minds are able to see. In a sense, who are we to think that we understand the mind of God or who are we to, that we can scrutinize and judge God, that He has a goodness beyond us? We can see. I mean, she, she was called to terrible suffering, and yet it brought such goodness uh, in the world uh, around her, such redemption and she suffered big time, big time. Yes, Kim. I'm, I guess I'm looking at a different perspective. Good. I'm thinking, how many times has I have I been called to do something, and myself, like I don't want to do that, mm. but it is truly God calling me to do this thing that I'm supposed to do, and you know, I look at it as in. God can use Mother Teresa. God can use all of us. Mm-hmm. And how many times have we not taken, you know, we, we've pondered through our heads those things that, oh, you know, he's not really telling me to do that. Or, oh, no, not me. You know, as if to say, I am not worthy of those things that he's called us to do. But he's still calling us, even to this day, to do those things that he would have us to do. And it just make you know, I see how he's used Mother Teresa. You know, my thing is, he's used her, and he can use all of us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think we need to hear that other people go through that that struggle, that mm-hmm. toil of, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'm not. No, no. You, are you sure you want me to do this? You sure? I mean, I'm I'm really doing good right here, you know. And we, I don't, I don't think we always accept the things that he would have us to do. I, th- I think she would say very clearly that what was special about her, I mean, we have this celebrity culture that says, oh, she must be, you know, she's the most moral person in the world, whatever, you know. She would say, what is special about me is that God's hand upon me. That, and that's it. That's, right. that's, right. that's it. And he, can do, and he can use yeah. any of us. You yeah. know what I mean? And, that's, and I think that sometimes we, we uplift people so and put them up like, well, you know, I could never be yeah. Mother Teresa, but really... Yeah, you Mother Teresa, she couldn't either. Yeah. Last one, Sissy. Look at most of the people that God called throughout the Bible. Yeah, oh yeah. That's a ragtag group of folks. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, and, and Teresa would say if if uh, the same thing Paul said, he called me. The same thing Teresa of Avila said actually. He called me to demonstrate the incredible mercy to people who are not as bad as me. So. The scripture says, through God, all things are possible. So, go do it. God's peace.